As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for joining us on the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson and I want to wish you a very happy new year. Before I introduce this week's show, just a quick reminder to head over to our website, premierunbelievable.com, to find more shows, articles and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a free ebook. I also want to tell you about our online apologetics course, which I feel like Lewis would have quite enjoyed, Science, Faith and the Evidence for God. It includes nearly four hours of video material with John Lennox, Emeritus Professor of Mathematics and Philosophy of Science at Oxford University. The course is led by Justin Briley of Premier Unbelievable, and it includes questions and assignments to help ground your learning. To celebrate the launch of this course, we're extending a 30% discount until the new year. The offer ends on Wednesday the 4th of January, so enrol now at premierunbelievable.com slash Lennox and learn how to make sense of science, faith and the evidence for God. But now for today's show. As we begin a new year, I thought it would be a good time to pause and remind ourselves of the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. Over the next few months, Professor Alistair McGrath will be sharing his insight into many aspects of Lewis's life. Alistair has written numerous books on C.S. Lewis, including a seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, Eccentric Genius, Reluctant Prophet. It's been 10 years since this wonderful book was released, and to celebrate, we're going to look at one chapter each week. We're also giving you the opportunity to win a copy of the book, so listen in over the next few episodes to get yourself a free copy of C.S. Lewis, A Life, courtesy of publisher Hodder and Stoughton. Like Lewis, Alistair was raised in Northern Ireland, studied at Oxford University and went on to become a professor there. Alistair also came to faith from atheism slightly later in life and Lewis's works have had a profound impact on him. Professor Alistair McGrath shares his thoughts with me here. Alistair, it's been a while since we spoke, so I thought perhaps we would use this first episode um, to kick off this new series, kind of looking at going back to the basics, looking at, you know, why people would want to get into C.S. Lewis, how they can do that. So before we do that, let's just have a little look at your own journey. What was your first experience of C.S. Lewis, Alistair? Well, I I actually grew up in Northern Ireland, was born in Belfast like C.S. Lewis, but I, I haven't really heard of him. And when people talked about him in Northern Ireland, they talked about him as an English writer, which puzzled me, I have to say. However, my first encounter with Lewis really took place about two years after I was converted to Christianity. And I was well, this happened at Oxford University. I was a student. I was um, very excited about my new faith and all also wanted to learn a lot about it and I kept asking my friends difficult questions like you know what's the trinity all about and they they got a bit bit, bit fed up with this actually <laughs> and so I guess in desperation one of them said look go and read C.S. Lewis 
So I, I had been given the book token. I went to the bookstore, bought at random, really, a book by C.S. Lewis. It was called They Asked for a Paper and started to read it. And I came across one essay in particular. It was called um, Is Theology Poetry? And as I read this, well, it was as if um, I was standing on a mountaintop looking down at a beautiful landscape or someone turned a light on. Everything suddenly made sense. And that began what I suppose you'd really describe as a love affair with C.S. Lewis, which I have to say continues to this day, an embarrassingly long number of years afterwards. <laughs> and I suppose this is going to be quite hard to kind of whittle down. But what influence do you think he's had on your own life, Alistair? Well, I think that there are two things I would single out. One is the idea that Christianity is a big picture, not just a series of individual beliefs, but rather a, a bigger way of looking at things of which these individual beliefs are part, but they're only part. And really stepping into that big picture is the very important thing. And secondly, Lewis makes it absolutely clear we've got to explain and translate our faith. Otherwise, people will not understand it. And Lewis does that brilliantly, and I've always tried to emulate him, but somehow Lewis always seems to do it much better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're being very hard on yourself there. I think you do a brilliant job as well. But it's it's been 60 years since Lewis died now, but he's obviously still well-read, still, you know, new people are finding him every day. Why do you think C.S. Lewis is still relevant 60 years after his death? Well, I think Lewis is very, very readable. In fact, I, I would say more than that. I would say Lewis is inexhaustible. What I mean by that is you read him and then you come back and you read him again. And it's the same passage, but you see things you didn't see the first time round. And that's that's what all my friends find about Lewis. You come to him, you read him again, and you suddenly say, hey, I've seen something now I didn't see before. That's a very important point. Secondly, Lewis is a very good writer. I mean, time and time again, I've underlined phrases and thought, that is so good. I wish I'd thought of that. Um, and I think that that is helpful because Lewis makes his makes his faith immensely readable. And very often, I have to say, um, some other Christian writers are a little bit dull. Uh, Lewis is not. And that, that really does help. But the other thing, I think this is really important, is as you read Lewis, you, you feel you are encountering something of depth and solidity. In other words, you say, this guy's got hold of something and it's really interesting. I've got to stick with him and see where he takes me. And I, again, I, I feel like this is probably quite hard to sort of, you know, put into a succinct answer. But but what do you think has Lewis's impact been over, I suppose, during his life, but, but particularly since his death? Well, I think uh, very often people say that imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. And there are a lot of people who... Uh, uh, try to imitate Lewis. And actually, that's not a bad thing because um, Lewis does need updating at one or two points. But I think, that, you know, people have clearly seen him as a role model. And actually, he's quite a good role model, um, both in terms of writing fiction as a means of apologetics, but also doing apologetics in a way that engages the imagination. And that, I think, is really important because I think we have we have learned that simply argumentative approaches to apologetics don't really work very well, whereas an appeal to the imagination captures people's vision and really changes them from within. So I think that's another thing. But in general terms, it's just here is someone who has stood the test of time. And very often people will read him because they know there's something in him. People say, I've read him, he's wonderful. And it's his reputation which makes people read him, even if they might try and surpass him in some way in what they're doing themselves. 
And I suppose it's one thing, you know, you talk there about the fact that he there are perhaps elements where he needs updating, you know, he's writing from a very specific context. But what would you say to those people who suggest that Lewis isn't only outdated, but perhaps there are moments in his writing where he's maybe sexist or racist or or some more kind of troubling elements to his writing? What what would your response be to, to those people? Well, my response would be that that may be true to some extent. The problem is that any writer who is able to speak to his or her own age powerfully is so attuned to the vocabulary, the culture of their own age, that a later age will find fault with them. And I would just say to those who are criticising Lewis, in 50 years time they'll be criticising you. And, and you know, you need to bear that in mind that, that in effect we are all historically located. Lewis knew that and spoke to his own historical location. Okay, things have moved on, but you've got to bear in mind, Lewis was able to do something that many were not able to do, which is speak powerfully and effectively not only to his own social context, but way, way beyond that. So I'm sure there's something in that criticism, but we need to set that in context. But he was also quite forward thinking, wasn't he, in some of the things that he was writing about? And actually, some of that made him quite unpopular at the time, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. And Lewis was a vigorous opponent of vivisection for Christian reasons. And many said, well, hey, look, you know, this is this is mad. You know, we, we need vivisection. And Lewis was saying, well, maybe there's something in that. But we have to bear in mind our responsibility to animals. And at, at that time, back in the 1940s, people were saying, what responsibilities? You know, uh, we're, we're in charge. I think Lewis very often um, spoke uh, with an authority that was ahead of his own time. So we do need to bear that in mind, that Lewis, in effect, anticipated some things we're talking about now, but which his own generation wasn't really ready for. And what would you say to someone who is really wanting to get into C.S. Lewis, but perhaps the slightly archaic language might be a little bit of a barrier? Is there any way that you could kind of help them to navigate some of that language? I think that that is a real issue. Um, but what you can do, in effect, is say, I recognise there's an issue here. And what I'm going to do is say, despite the fact that I'm going to read with more concentration than usual, I will be able to do this. It's worth it. Uh, in one of his essays, Lewis talks about um, someone learning Italian to be able to read Dante and the pleasure that gives mm. them. In reading Lewis, sometimes you have to just give him the benefit of the doubt, saying, look, there's something really worthwhile here. And the real problem is that we can't actually um, read him without translating him. And that, I think, is something we simply have to learn to do, to, to translate Lewis as we try and read him. I think that's a really interesting point because for me, I, I tried to read C.S. Lewis kind of on a beach, relaxing, not really thinking about it. And, and for me, it just didn't, you know, maybe I'm a little bit stupid, but it didn't come easily to me. Whereas when I started sitting down with him, having read some of the things that you'd written to kind of help me get into Lewis's mind, I sat down with a pen, you know, underlining things, pencil, making notes. And actually that's when Lewis came alive for me, when I really sort of began to engage with him almost in a kind of scholarly way. So I think you're absolutely right that the approach is um, definitely really helpful. And I suppose if someone wants to get into Lewis but doesn't really know where to begin, you know, there's a plethora of essays and books, um, what would you suggest is a good place to begin? I think Lewis appeals to um, a number of different kinds of people. He is very, very good on accessible, rational arguments for faith. If you're a kind of person who says, I want something thoughtful and, you know, 
reasonable read mere Christianity. He's also really rather good on, in effect, engaging your imagination. And one of the things he does beautifully is tell his own story. So you might think of Surprised by Joy, in which Lewis simply tells his own story, who he is and how he discovered Christianity. As you read that, I think you'll find that you are drawn in, not simply to Lewis's own story, but to the, to the bigger vision of reality called Christianity, which Lewis so powerfully discovered and tells us about that. For me, certainly, reading your brilliant biography here, C.S. Lewis, A Life, I'm holding it up to the camera, um, it was really helpful in terms of making me want to re-engage with C.S. Lewis. You know, I'd kind of grown up reading Narnia and, and some other bits and pieces, but, but reading your biography really helped me get back into his more kind of meaty um, works. So, but, you know, it's been 10 years now since your biography came out, which is remarkable. Why, why did you decide to write? a biography because obviously there'd been biographies before of Lewis but but why why now well you know why 10 years ago and why did you decide to write the biography Alistair? Well I'll tell you I mean it's, it's a very good question I mean obviously I've, I've read Lewis a lot and I've done a lot of research on Lewis but what happened was I took up a new job at King's College London which is a beautiful place right in the middle of London and my new employer said to me we would like you to do a big project. So think of something you'd like to research and write during your time here, in addition to all the regular things you do as a university professor. And I thought, you know, um, I took up this job in 2008, and I thought to myself, 2013 is the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death. That gives me four years to research and write a major new study of Lewis. So I decided I would bring together all the work I'd already done on Lewis and go much, much further. And so this, this biography really is a result of four years research and in which I read everything Lewis wrote in chronological order to get a sense of the development of his mindset. And then, listen to this very carefully, set out not simply to tell his story, but to explain him um, so that people who read my book would actually also read some Lewis in doing so and say, I want to read this guy more. So in many ways, I see that biography as a gateway to Lewis. It, it sets the scene for making sense of Lewis and invites you to go and read more. And I've had many people write to me saying, Alistair, we started reading Lewis as a result of your book and we really enjoyed it. So I'm so pleased. But basically, this book is telling Lewis a story, but not stopping there. It's saying, now you know about him, read him. You'll yeah. love it. <laughs> and that certainly was the case for me. It definitely got me back into Lewis. So I'm, I'm immensely grateful for that. But you mentioned there that you read everything that Lewis had ever written. I mean, that is quite an undertaking. How did you go about finding everything? Because obviously a lot of it's in the public domain, but there must be lots of sort of private collections and things like that. Was that, was that quite difficult to get hold of? Well, I was able to get access to a lot of archive material. Um, um, and, and actually most of the stuff Lewis wrote is, is available. So it's, it's not that difficult, but it was really arranging everything in order of writing. Because I was trying to look at the development of his writing style, look at the development of his um, uh, his ideas. And it, it was very, very interesting because you could see him changing over time. And that was really exciting, changing particularly in terms of the way he expresses himself, but also, I think, in terms of his the level of his engagement with his faith. And I think it was, it was personally, I thought, very, very interesting to see this remarkable person developing the ideas and methods for which we now remember him. Because they didn't, they weren't always there, they emerged. 
And I mean, you've already touched on some of your own similarities with C.S. Lewis. Was that one of the reasons that it was important for you to write this biography? Do you think, you know, you, you grew up in County Down, you spent a lot of time at Oxford, brief spell at Cambridge, conversion later in life like Lewis. Was that, was that an important part of it? Well, I think it was. I mean, basically, if I'm put like this, I have a lot of cultural empathy with Lewis. We, ha we have very similar life trajectories. I mean, I'm not comparing myself with him. He's much better than I am. But nevertheless, my own personal history, for example, helped me to understand immediately why Lewis found it so difficult to fit in at Oxford because he was an outsider, as I was when I came to Oxford. Uh, and, you know, that uh, I was able to make a lot of sense of him, given my Irish background, given his Irish background. But it's also, if you like, a very small act of tribute from one person born in Belfast to another person born in Belfast, uh, and uh, emphasising Lewis's Irish roots, which are very often not acknowledged. I need to stress that. It's really important that Lewis has this Irish background because it does help us understand the fluidity of his language. It, it's um, very, very obvious to another Irishman this is where it comes from. And we're going to talk more about that in a later episode. But, you know, lots of people sort of talk about him as an Oxford Don, don't they? But there's, there doesn't seem to be, as you say, much memory about his Irishness, but also the fact that he did a stint at Cambridge as well. Well, that's right. I mean, Lewis is firmly imprinted on most people's memories as an Oxford Don. Well, he became one, but there's a very interesting story about how he came to be an Oxford Don in the first place. And I try to tell that in the biography. And then Lewis moved to Cambridge. And again, the story of how he moved to Cambridge to take up a full professorship there is really interesting. And J.R.R. Tolkien played a major role in that transition. But actually, people still think of Lewis as an Oxford professor, because actually, even though he was a professor at Cambridge, he kept on living in Oxford, going home every weekend to the kilns. So he kept those Oxford roots. Maybe it's right to think of him as a thoroughly Oxford figure. Mm. But that's not all he is, is it? You mentioned in the preface of your book that there were sort of three C.S. Lewis's. What do you mean by that? And how do you think that impacts the way that we read his books? I think what I was trying to do, say simply is that, that, that we have uh, Lewis writing at multiple levels. Lewis, the novelist, Lewis, the apologist, Lewis, the serious Christian thinker. And you could add many, many more to these. He, he's a very, very rich figure. What I, I was trying to do in, in teasing out the different Lewises was to say, look, people begin by discovering one Lewis. And then because they like that one, they begin to find the other one. So if you like, you radiate outwards from the aspect of C.S. Lewis that you enjoy. For example, although I initially began to really enjoy Lewis's apologetic writings, I then found myself gravitating towards his other works, which in effect gave me a, a much where he was writing to Christians rather than to non-Christians and actually helping me to get a deeper vision of my faith. So I found him really helpful in kind of way developing my faith on all fronts. Well, we're going to go through a lot of these different aspects of Lewis's life. But just as we come to the end of this episode, Alistair, what are some of the things that you unearthed while you were writing the biography? Was there anything that sort of surprised or shocked you or anything that changed the way that you think about Lewis? Well, I think I, I deliberately decided that anything I discovered would go into the biography, whether it was good or bad. I have to say, I came away from writing this biography uh, with a deeper respect for Lewis, even though I had been rather rigorous in my investigations. I did not come across anything that diminished my estimation of him. But I did come across some things that surprised me. Let me tell you two of them. Number one, um, Lewis talks about his conversion as taking place in the Trinity term of 1929. If you, uh, at Oxford, that means sometime between April and June 1929. 
There's no evidence apart from Lewis's single statement about that in Surprised by Joy. And I have to say, Surprised by Joy contains a lot of chronological errors, where very often he's out by a year. It's absolutely clear to me Lewis was converted in the summer of 1930. Absolutely clear. Because he tells us that after he was converted, he began to go to Walden College Chapel and to his local Anglican church. Lewis wrote a very important letter um, dating from October 1930, saying, I now go to College Chapel. In other words, it's a very recent development. So that's, but it's not important, I mean, because who cares when Lewis was converted? The important thing is he was converted. But here's the other thing I discovered, which I don't think anybody had realized. Um, when I was reading Lewis's letters, I came across one that has saying, I wonder who we should propose, or I wonder who, who should get the next Nobel Prize in Literature. And then he moved on to talk about something else. And I thought, why is he asking that question? So I began to do some research and I wrote to the Nobel Foundation in Stockholm. And I said, um, looking at the particular date range Lewis had mentioned, did you have any correspondence from C.S. Lewis about possible nominations for the Nobel Prize for Literature? And back came a letter. Yes, he nominated J.R.R. Tolkien. And you know what? The Nobel Foundation sent me a copy of Lewis's letter of nomination and nobody knew about it. <laughs> Wonderful. So it's, it's printed out in the biography. So lots of surprises, but no unpleasant surprises. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'm so excited about this series that we're going to be kicking off because we're going to be going chapter by chapter through your brilliant biography. But Alistair, thank you so much. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson, and I want to wish you a very happy new year. We were hearing there from Professor Alistair McGrath, author of C.S. Lewis, A Life. Listen in to the next few episodes to see how you can win yourself a free copy of the book. Next time, we'll be diving into chapter one of Alistair's book. But before we go, just a reminder about our new online apologetics course, which I feel like Lewis would have loved, Science, Faith and the Evidence for God with John Lennox. It includes nearly four hours of video material with John Lennox, Emeritus Professor of Mathematics and Philosophy of Science at Oxford University. The course is led by Justin Briley of Premier Unbelievable, and it includes questions and assignments to help ground your learning. To celebrate the launch of this course, we're extending a 30% discount until the new year. The offer ends on Wednesday the 4th of January, so enrol now at premierunbelievable.com slash Lennox and learn how to make sense of science, faith and the evidence for God. Thank you for listening and see you next time.